Glad you all are here today. I know several things have been said about this already, but I just think it bears pointing out. It is beautiful outside. And I, have you noticed, I mean, we had a very mild winter this year. Like, I don't think, we, did we get any snow at all? There was zero snow. Zero, which has been a long time, right? And I'm count. Well, there's a reason we moved here from New York. We were escaping that. Um, and we did this year, for sure. Um, but uh, yeah, so like it's been a, wild, a mild winter, but I really feel like we've started to turn the corner, right? Like it's, should I say it? Okay. It's almost the season after winter. Like it's, it's starting to get a little sunnier. It's been rainy, but it's starting to pass. The sun's starting to shine. It's been warm. We've had the windows open. Like I love this time of year. That also means we've had pollen all over our house, which I don't love. <laughs> but yeah, this is a great time of year. It feels like in the spring is may potentially be coming. Um, that things start to change. It's like the world starts to open up a little bit. I don't know why I kind of picture that in my head. It's like winter, we all sort of go into our little cold, warm, cozy shell, and then spring comes and we start to emerge and turn a corner. And so I think it's appropriate today that as we're studying through the book of Romans, we're turning a corner today. So we have studied all the way up through Romans chapter 11, and today we're going to start with chapter 12. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 12, and um, if that's your app on your phone or your print Bible or whatever. We are going to put it on the screen, but we go through a lot of content in this series, and so the, the verses come fast on the screen, and so it might be hard to keep up with. If you have it printed in front of you, you can look. You can still go back, and you can look at other things and refresh and review, and so that's very, very helpful to do. So I would encourage you to do that. In Romans chapter 12, we're going to turn a corner because Paul has been setting the stage over what we call 11 chapters. He's been setting the stage for the gospel, the good news. He's been laying it all out. And so he's, if you remember back to the very beginning of this series, and if you weren't with us, you can go watch all these online. They're there for you if you want to catch up. But back at the beginning of Romans, Paul says, we are all sin. Every man has sinned and every man, every person has fallen short of God's glory. There's no way by our own self-effort we could ever be good enough to be justified before God or be right before him. So the good news is that God sent Jesus and Jesus gave his life on the cross and paid for our sin so that we could be justified through faith in Jesus. And that's the only way to do it. We can't be justified by works of the law. We can't be justified by being good people or moral people. We can't be justified by keeping all of the rules in the Bible. We can only be justified before God by putting our faith in Jesus for salvation. And that is it. So he says that's how we're justified. That's the good news. And then the more good news is that once we're justified before God, now God wants to save us. Okay? And that... That could be a little confusing. For those of you that haven't been with us, that can be confusing when Paul uses the word save because we tend to think of justification being made right before God because that's how we use the word. It's not how he used the word. When he says save, he means being saved from the wrath of God against sin in the world. So being saved from the penalty of sin in the world. We would call that sanctification or discipleship, spiritual growth and maturity. So not only has God offered to justify us by what Jesus did on the cross, but now he also wants to save save us out of the world and free us from the penalty of sin now. And how does he do that? Well, here's the good news. Well, first of all, I guess the bad news, it's not, again, by being a good person or by works of the law. 
That's what Romans chapter 7 is all about. Okay, that's that frustration, if you've ever heard this before, where Paul says, I know the good I ought to do, but I don't do it. The very thing that I hate, I do. This internal struggle he has, that's about a time in his life when he was trying to be saved from the world. He was trying to grow spiritually or spiritual maturity. He, he was trying to please God by going back again to the law, and that doesn't work. So it's not by that. Romans chapter 8, he says, it is through the Spirit. So we are justified before God by by faith in Jesus Christ, and we are saved from the world by walking in the Spirit. That's good news, and that's a great life that God has planned for us and a great hope that he has for us. So he lays all that out, and he says it's not by anything you've done, but it is by what God is doing in you and what God does for you. And so that is great news for us. And then he spends chapters 9, 10, and 11, which we spent the last four weeks talking about, saying, okay, so now what does that mean for Israel? Because they had the law and the promises and the covenant. What does that mean for them? Is God done with them? Are they past? Is their time over? And what does it mean for this new thing where the Gentiles, non-Jews, are becoming a part of this thing too? And so he spends 9, 10, and 11 laying out what that means. And the end of the story is, essentially, if I can just kind of cliff notes, cliff notes it. Uh, have you ever noticed that cliff, it's not cliff notes? I'm sorry. So I have to like catch myself. Cliff's notes. It's, yeah, Cliff, they're his notes. It's possessive. All right, so anyway, the, Cliff, the Cliff's Notes version is, no, God is not done because the promises of God are irrevocable. He is not done with Israel, but they have been set aside for now while God brings in the fullness of the Gentiles, and then eventually he will come back to them, and he will deal with them, and they will receive Christ as their Messiah, the same as the church has. And then it will be this beautiful thing altogether. And in view of that, Paul just breaks down essentially at the end of Romans chapter 11 and just puts this hymn of praise where scripture, he pulls in scripture, he has his own words and he also pulls in scripture. It's called a doxology at the end of chapter 11 where he's like, look at how beautiful this is. Look at how incredible. Look at, look at the wisdom of God to be able to lay this whole thing out and put this plan together. I never in a million years could have thought of doing this. Nevertheless, working it out over years and generations and working in millions and billions of people's hearts and everything that God is doing across the expanse of history to see all of this and to see the culmination and the redemption and forgiveness and salvation of man is incredible. And he's just blown away by it. And so he finishes. It really is a clear finish to a section in his letter at the end of chapter 11. And then he moves into chapter 12 and really the the rest of this letter. And the question is, in light of all of that, what do we do? How are we supposed to respond to the beauty and the majesty and the wisdom of the gospel? How is it supposed to change us day in and day out? And that's what we're going to start with in Romans chapter 12. So let's get right into it. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, beg, I beg, I plead of you, therefore. Brethren, so he's talking to his brothers and sisters in Christ. Brethren, I beg you, by the mercies of God, a reference to everything he has talked about, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. I, I love the way this is worded in the New King James, which is what we usually read from in here. Um, there are lots of other great versions and different interpretations, but I, I love the way it's worded here. This is your reasonable service. 
Like, this is the only logical conclusion. The only logical conclusion of, of fully seeing and appreciating the beauty of the gospel is to say to God, God, all of this, all of this is yours. You get my whole life. I am a living, walking, breathing, talking sacrifice to you. Let my entire life rise up to you as a pleasing aroma. It's the only logical conclusion. Anything less doesn't do the gospel justice. To offer ourselves fully to him. And and Paul introduces a, a kind of a new idea here. The idea of a living sacrifice. Okay, They would have been very familiar with dead sacrifices. Okay. Obviously, that has been the sacrifices that were commanded in the Old Testament law, sacrifices in lots of cultures across history. And I know we look at that now and we go, oh, how could they do that? Different time, different command, different people, different cultures, all of that. Okay, But they would have understood that when a sacrifice was made, well, you could only do that once, right? Because you know how that ends. And, but what he's recommending here is that in light of the sacrifice that's been made for you, in light of the sacrifice Christ has made for you, offer yourself as a living, ongoing, continual sacrifice back to him. That my entire life is worship to God. Every decision I make, every conversation that I have, and I know we, when we use the word worship, we're often talking about moments or times or styles of worship or other things like that. And that can easily um, sort of compact or compress this idea. But worship and offering yourself as a living sacrifice is something all-encompassing and whole. It is, it is looking at God and saying with my entire life, my heart, my soul, my being, my, my, my mind and my learning and my conversations and my finances and my calendar and my relationships and everything in my life, God, I want to offer back to you as a living, breathing, walking, every moment sacrifice to you. It is the only logical, the only reasonable response to God's grace is to put ourselves fully in his hands. And so that's what we should all make an effort to do. Now, that's hard. It's hard because we are human beings and we are not conditioned to live that way. That's not the way we've lived our entire lives. Especially if you come to faith later in life, it's a whole new thing. What does this mean to offer myself? How do I even do it? How do I know? How do I see it? Okay, verse 2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. How do I offer myself as a living sacrifice to God? I have to be transformed. I have to be transformed to see the world and myself that way, to see people that way. I I have to be utterly and completely changed because up until now, I have been conformed to the world, to the pattern of the world. And so I need something different. I need to be transformed. You need to be transformed if we're going to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. And what that allows us to do, as he says here, is to prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. As long as I'm conforming to the world, I'm not going to see or recognize or validate God's will as good and acceptable and perfect. 
Only when I'm transformed can I see what God is doing and really appreciate all that he's doing in my life and to walk with him in that way. Now, um, as we're looking at this verse, there's something that really stuck out to me. Obviously, Paul did not write this in English. He wrote this in Greek. And Greek is a different language than English. And so it's really in. Well, I hope that went without saying. I didn't. I didn't mean for that to like. <laughs> I didn't mean for that to like sound condescending or anything. That wasn't the goal. Greek is different than English. No, not that. I don't. I don't. Anytime I, talk, I just want to be clear. Like anytime I talk about this, this is not so you, you think I'm smart or anything. You can do this research yourself. There's so many great resources. You can. My favorite, and I'll just recommend it to you if you're looking for a way to study more in depth into Scripture, is a f- totally free website called BlueLetterBible.org. BlueLetterBible.org. I use it every week for sermon prep. It's totally free. Now, you can contribute to them if you want to help support it, and that's a good thing because it's a great ministry. But uh, you can literally, you can go in, you can click on the verse, and then you can expound it and see every single word in that verse and the Greek word, and, and then you can click on the Greek word, and it'll tell you the tense and the, all of that, and it'll, it'll pronounce it for you. It'll show you everywhere it's, it's used in Scripture, like tremendous. So this is not because I'm smart, uh, but I do think that I am resourceful, So and you can be resourceful too. And so um, Greek is different than English, and, <laughs> sorry, uh, it's a beautiful language. Um, one of the things that I, I really appreciate about Greek is that um, in English, our words have kind of a surface meaning to them, and then we use lots of qualifiers and connecting words in order to give meaning to the other word, whereas Greek doesn't have nearly as much of that. In the Greek language, words carry more depth than they do in English. They carry, because of the tense and the gender of the word and and the usage and all this, words in Greek take on a third dimension that we don't get as much in, in English. And so when you really look at a word and understand why it was chosen, you can get a much better understanding of what that word is intended to mean. And I love to think about, um, Paul, when he's writing, he's being led by and inspired by the Spirit. And so not only is Paul in his own you know, ability being very careful about what he writes and intentional, but the Spirit is leading him to choose certain words over other words. And, and I get that because I'm someone who's a little meticulous about wording of things. Okay, I will, I will sit down if I'm working on an email. Maybe some of you are like this. Like, if I, send you, if I send you a two-paragraph email, it took me four hours to write that, okay? I, I wrote it 18 times, all right? I changed the sentences, and I changed the words, and then you reply, thanks. <laughs> Just so you know, I want you to know how I feel, all right? But, but I will pour over every word because I, the, the, I want the actual intent. It's hard because um, black and white doesn't convey emotion, right, or, or typically doesn't, and so that's why things are often misread. But, but word choice and phrasing is really important. So this is what, this was what stunned me, I guess, this week as I was reading this passage in particular. So he says, don't be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so I was like, why why did he choose, and he did choose two different words? Why? Because he very easily could have used the first word twice, and that would have been a very Paul thing to do. He loves to, to repeat and play on words and stuff. So he very easily could have written, do not be conformed to this world, but conform to Christ. He could have used that word, but he didn't. 
And so the Spirit led him to two different words. And so that must matter. That must matter. So what are the words that are written here? Okay, the word for conform, do not conform, is the word syschematizo. Syschematizo. Forgive me if I'm not pronouncing that correctly. I didn't click on the little button on Blue Letter Bible to make sure that I was pronouncing that correctly. But you can, and you can check up on me later. All right, syschematizo. It has the word schema in the middle of it. Okay? Like we would think, I would think of a schematic. So similar roots. So the idea of this word is to see a pattern of something and then shape yourself to that pattern, to put yourself in that system. So I think of how oftentimes, and in groups you're going you're gonna to talk about this when you may have done this in your life this week if you're in a group. Um, when we've looked at someone and said, I want to be just like them. We, I want what they have. I want to be, be who they are and, and all of that. One of those people for me was, this is back in high school, all right? Now, you need to know, in high school, I was not an athlete. Obviously, Jimmy. Whether I'm an athlete now is debatable, okay? I walked 18 holes yesterday. I feel like I'm going to die right now. So I'm not an athlete now either. But uh, so... um, in high school, as not an athlete. I was into music. I was, I was into, I was in all the choirs. I was in the boys' quartet. I, I, I was in drama. Like they just did Into the Woods here, Into the Woods Junior. I was in that in high school. All right, and that was so that was I was singing along as we were here. That's what I was into. And my favorite musical. I, I loved musicals. I would go to shows all the time. My favorite musical was Les Mis, and my favorite singer ever in the history of the world was the. Uh, First lead, Jean Valjean in Les Mis, his name is Colm Wilkinson. And Colm Wilkinson to me was it. Like when he sings Bring Him Home in Les Mis, it's one of the most, choked up a little bit. It's one of the most beautiful things you can imagine. Other kids were listening to whatever they were in their car. I had the Les Mis soundtrack in my car in high school, all right? It was so beautiful, and I would listen to him, and I would listen to how he sang and how he would sing, and he had this, he had this way of uh, rounding out his mouth that I would try to emulate, and I would try to sing the same way, and then I would sing Bring Him Home and try for my voice to sound like his voice. He was the pattern, and I was trying to mold myself to that pattern, which in that case was a little foolish because I was never going to sing like Colm Wilkinson. But that's what this this word gives you the idea of. It's pouring yourself into the mold or into the pattern of something else or someone else. To look at the, this is what he's talking about. Don't look at the world. Don't look at people who are successful in the world or powerful in the world or rich in the world or whatever. Don't look at them and say, I want to be like that. Because if your goal is to be like that, if your goal is to be like the world, then you are going to take your life and you are going to offer it as a living sacrifice to that, to that world. And so now all the decisions that you make and all the steps that you take and bonds that you break and, no, <laughs> so that happened by accident, they are, they're all going to lead you to that end. And that's not your end. Your end, your goal, what God is doing you in you is not to make you the most successful person in the world. His goal is to make you a successful person in his kingdom, and they're not the same. Not this kingdom, his kingdom. And so he doesn't want us to be conformed 
Otherwise, our values, our dreams, our spending, our schedules, our priorities, our relationships, our education, our lifestyle, our vote, our clothing, our social media posts, our haircut, all of that is all it's going to be do is conforming us into something that doesn't last and something that is shallow. Something that is a waste. God has something so much better for you. And he has something so much better for me. Is not to be conformed to the world. And listen, Christians, just because we're Christians doesn't mean we're immune to this. It doesn't mean we're immune to it. And I hate to say that, I, I think that we have been, as American Christians, we have been so conformed to the culture and world around us and it has been so infused into Christianity that oftentimes we look more like great Americans than we do great Christians. Our kingdom is higher, okay? So we need to live by kingdom values, kingdom goals. And so we have to be looking forward to this and we can be lulled into being conformed to the world rather than what God actually wants for us, which is to be transformed to be a new creation in him. All right, so the word suschematizo uh, means to be conformed to the world, but Paul, the spirit through Paul, chooses a different word to talk about what's supposed to happen with us. And it is the word metamorpho. Now, of course, you can hear the root there, right? The same root. Is metamorphosis. You think about a butterfly going into a chrysalis, or well, a butterfly doesn't go into a chrysalis, caterpillar or whatever it is goes into the chrysalis, and out comes the butterfly, right? Metamorpho. This word is very intentionally chosen, and I think it's an important word. This word is only used four times in the New Testament, twice in the Gospels, and then twice by Paul in his letters. In the Gospels, it's used once in the Gospel of Matthew, and it's used once in the Gospel of Mark, both to describe the same thing. Jesus' disciples had been following him for some time, and they had seen Jesus, and Jesus was fully God and fully man, but physically, visibly, they had only seen him as a man. And so there came a day where Jesus chose that he was going to show his full glory to his closest friends. And so he takes Peter, James, and John, the three amigos. He takes them up on top of a mountain. And on the mountain, he displays his full glory to them, visibly, physically. The glory of God shining on them. And the scripture in both Matthew and Mark says, Jesus, this is not translated transformed. It's now translated transfigured. And Jesus is metamorpho in front of them. And they get to visibly see and witness the glory of God as Jesus is transformed in front of them. That's how it's used in Matthew and Mark. And then Paul uses this word again, obviously where we read it, but he also uses it in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, where he's talking about how there was a barrier, because of the law, there was a barrier between God and man. But that in Christ, that barrier is removed. And we have direct access to God and the glory of God. And he's talking about how that veil, even for Jews at that time, that veil still existed between them and God. And this is what he says, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 
says, for until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. Now this veil, if I could pause for a moment and back up, the veil he's talking about is, is, is a reference to when Moses went up on top of the mountain to get the Ten Commandments. And Moses goes on to the mountain and he receives the Ten Commandments and there experiences the glory of God. And when he comes down from the mountain, he doesn't realize it, but his face is shining. His, because... Because he's been in the presence of God, his face is shining like the sun. And he doesn't even, he doesn't even realize that it's happening. He gives the commandments, and every, you know, everybody's talking about it. And so he has to take a veil, and he has to put it over his face. And that veil represents that, 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 that barrier between God and man. And Paul says, in Jesus Christ, that veil was taken away. It's, it's, it's symbolized by the fact that when Jesus died on the cross and he gave his life, there was a, there was a, a temple veil. There was a curtain that separated the, the main area of the temple from the area called the Holy of Holies, where the presence of God existed. And when Christ died on the cross, that veil was rent from top to bottom. Which means, what an honor. We, we have access to God directly, to the glory of God. And, and so Paul says, because the veil was taken away in Christ, but even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. There it is. Are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So get this mental image. He's saying that we have access to the glory of God and we are being transformed into that image. And it's almost as if, imagine yourself standing in front of a full-length mirror. And when you look into that mirror, instead of seeing yourself look back or something of the world look back, the glory of God is shining back at you because that is what he is transforming you into. The word, when he says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The reason that the word sischematizo isn't used is because it's not sufficient. It's not sufficient. What God is doing in you and what God is doing in me is bigger than that and better than that. He is in the process of taking us and molding us and shaping us and transforming us into the image of Christ, the glorious image of Christ. So, in light of the gospel, in the light of what God wants to do in you, don't settle for anything less. Give your life as a living sacrifice to him and be transformed by the renewing of your mind to learn how to look at your life, how to look at the lives of people around you and see and approve the perfect and acceptable and pleasing word, and will of God. That is what we are supposed to do. So offer yourself as a sacrifice. But listen, if we want to see the good and acceptable and perfect will of God in our life, 
We're going to struggle to do that if we have one foot in and one foot out. If we find ourselves on the fence, then we're going to struggle. If we're trying as a believer to be conformed to the pattern of the world, and then God's good and pleasing and perfect will comes, we are not going to see it that way. We're going to get frustrated because God is working, but he is not working toward the end that we have in our heart, which is to be conformed to the world. And we say, well, God, what are you doing? You're not giving me what I want. And his answer is, you want the wrong thing. Yeah, you need, you need to be chasing after me. You need, to be, you need to be transformed into the image of Christ. And then you'll see that what I'm doing is good and right and perfect. But we have to be transformed in order for that to happen. And so that's a big thing. <laughs> that's a daunting thing. It's intimidating to think that that is what God is doing in me and to think about all the times that I fail and how much of my life is oriented toward the world as it is. And so this is a process. This is something that God works on us and he chips away at us and he chips away at us and he chips away at us and eventually takes a chunk and we give more and more and more and more and more of our life over to him. We offer ourselves more and more and more as a sacrifice and then we see his will as more and more and more perfect and good and acceptable. And so move. Okay, move, be transformed, take the next step. We must do this. All right, and as he's doing this, all right, verse three, we're not doing the whole chapter today, don't get worried. All right, You're like, boy, we're moving slow. No, okay, <laughs> that's the meat of it right there. All right, verse three, for I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Now, what God is doing us is, is incredible. But he's like, whoa, duh, yeah, whoa, hang on. Like, don't get, don't, don't, don't think, don't think too highly of yourself. All right. God is doing this in you, and he has something big for you to do. He has dealt to you a measure. Now, this is a place uh, where um, the, the, the Greek to English is a little tricky, and the translation into English is a little tough. So this idea that God has dealt a measure of faith, it looks to us in English the way that it's worded, like what he's saying is that God is dealing out faith, like he's giving eight faith to you and 12 faith to you, what units of faith, whatever that is, and he's giving 100 units of faith to you, and I don't believe that's what he's saying here. I think these words are meant to be um, separated, that God is dealing to you a measure. And that measure is of faith. So the measure, uh, the measure is, he is dealing to each one of us responsibility and opportunity. And that is in proportion to our faith. It is connected to our faith. So the more faith that I have, the more that God deals out to me. Not dealing out to me things that are going to conform me to the world. This is where people get really mixed up. They're like, well, if I have faith, then God's going to give me money, or he's going to give me power, or he's going to give me influence, he's going to give me whatever. The, the, no, 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 no. It's in proportion to our faith. How much we're being transformed. And the more transformed we are and the more faith we have, the more that aligns with his will. And so the measure that he gives us increases and increases. But we shouldn't allow that to give us a big head. He is giving that to us as a gracious gift. 
All right. And so putting that together, here's, here's the way Here's the way that I see this. And you'll see how this connects with the context that, that's coming here in a second. If we are being transformed and we are giving more and more of our life over to God, and we are putting in, and we're putting in our faith in him in increasing measure, then we are proving our trustworthiness and our faithfulness to him in increasing measure. And as we do that, he entrusts more and more and more to us. He gives us gifts to use. He gives us opportunities. He gives us ministries. He gives us responsibilities. And so he is going to use us as we go forward. And I think this makes perfect sense. If we give ourselves fully over to the process of transformation, God will give us opportunities and gifts in keeping with that. If we embrace this process, we are gifted by grace. By grace, these are gracious gifts, through faith. It's the same thing as salvation. Right? Our, our um, justification before God is by grace. It's by his grace. It's through faith. We access it through faith. We put our faith in Jesus. It's the same thing with the gifts and opportunities and everything that he wants to do in our life right now. They are by grace. They are given by his choice. They are by grace. And they are accessed through faith. The more faith that we have in him, the more we access these gifts, this measure that he has for us to use for his glory. So he says, don't be proud about this. And in fact, he starts um, verse three. He says, for I say, through the grace given to me. So Paul recognizes that this message that he's sharing with them, this truth that he's sharing with them, isn't from him anyway. It's a gift of grace by God. So I tell you, through the grace given to me, not to think yourself more highly than you should. And then in verse four, for as we have many members in one body, But all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us. Let us then use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts, In exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. And I want to encourage you, I'm not going to take the time to do it today, but to look at each one of those things and understand what that is. What does he mean when he says ministering? What does he mean when he says teaching? What does he mean when he says showing mercy? But the point here, and I think this is a list, it's often called a list of gifts, Okay, these are gifts that God, by his grace, would give to us to use, and they are given in proportion to our faith. And so it's a list of spiritual gifts. Okay, these are gifts from the Spirit. There are several lists like this in Scripture that Paul gives. They're all a little bit different. And so I'm of the opinion, and this is up for debate, I suppose, but I'm of the opinion that Paul does not intend for any of these lists to be all-inclusive. It's not like, here are the gifts, here are the 12 things, and that is all. Uh, it's, not, it's not that they're all apples. And even, in, even here, you look at some of these, these gifts are really different from each other. Like the gift of mercy, I mean, everybody should be showing mercy and has opportunities to do that. The gift of teaching, maybe not everybody has the opportunity to do that. Or the gift of you know, prophecy, maybe not everybody, or that might be for a very specific time or whatever, while some of these span, they're all different. So it's not like, it's not all apples, it's not all oranges, it's not just apples, bananas, and oranges. Like this is a fruit basket, Okay? These, these, are, these are examples of things God may do in you. 
gracious gifts that God will give to you in proportion to your faith. And everybody's role, everybody's job, everybody's function is different. So don't think of yourself too highly, but also don't think of yourself too lowly. Think of yourself soberly, he says, or reasonably. To say, I am offering my life as a sacrifice to God. I'm being transformed and giving my heart and my mind and everything in me more fully over to being transformed into the image of Jesus. And as I do that and I continue to put more and more faith in God and to follow him more and more closely, he is going to continue to gift me and he has something that he wants me to do for his glory. How unbelievable is that? Can you imagine? I mean, this is, and this pales in comparison, but I want you to imagine your favorite president of the United States. Okay. I'm not going to say the president now or, the, you know, I'm not going to you know, get, do that. All right. Your favorite president of the United States, whoever that is. I want you to imagine that that person called you up today and said, hey, I got a job I want you to do. Can you do something for me? I mean, that would be a tremendous honor. A tremendous honor. Well, yeah, of course. And I mean, you would, you would do it to the best of your ability. All right, that, that example, as big as it may feel, pales in comparison to the reality of your life as a Christian. That the God of the universe, who is working all of these things together, who is who has created everything, everything that we see, everything that we don't see, who holds it all in his hands, would look at you and would look at me and say, hey, I have a job for you to do. I'm trusting you with this. And I'm giving this to you, and you're the only one that's getting this specific thing, this specific opportunity, these specific relationships. You're the one who's getting this, and I'm trusting you with this. And I have given everything for you. And you've said that you'll give everything for me. So will you? And here's the gift. The gift is an ability to do something that beyond your natural ability. An opportunity that you wouldn't have met without his leading. A resource he's given you to use for his glory. Now, will you be faithful to use it? Will you do it? And I think we all have to look at our lives and say, am I fulfilling the ministry in light of the gospel and what he's done for me and my desire to follow him with my whole heart? Am I fulfilling the ministry that he's given to me? Do I know what that is? And am I giving everything in my life? I want you to be thinking about that. I've been thinking about that all week long specifically. And part of that might be, I know we have, we, I use the word ministry, I talk about serving, and we use those words here to talk about what everybody does here. And on, you know, Sundays and throughout the week, people do incredible things to serve. You know, we call this the service. But that's not just about like we are serving, every, it's not just about being served or anything like that. It's, it's everybody here is serving everybody here in, in the way that we come together. And we want this to be something that brings honor and glory to God. And so there are ways that you can fulfill your ministry through the organization of the church. We've got teams. Jess is trying to recruit 10 people today, like the whole thing. But, but that's not, I mean, that's only, that is a, it's like a once a week, hour, two hour piece of what God wants to do with you. That's the drop in the bucket. That's nothing. God wants to do something so much bigger with you. 
that there's no way that this, that this organization of a church could possibly coordinate for you. You have to ask God what he is gifting you with and what he wants you to do and then figure out the avenue to do that with all of your life. And part of that may happen here with this group, and that's awesome, but most of it's going to happen outside of these walls. Most of this is going to happen during the week for you. So you got to ask, what is it? God, and just spend time in prayer. God, what do you want to do with me? God, what do you want to do with me? What are you gifting me with? What do you, like, it's going to take some effort. It's going to take some effort to ask, to look, to assess, to figure all that out, and to come to a conclusion. And the question is, can you do that everywhere? I was, I was really, um, there was a time for me that I was struggling with this question because I always, or I knew from, from fairly early on, like my mid, late 20s or so, that what God, his primary ministry he wanted me to do was to teach his word. That's what he wanted me to do. And I was fortunate enough almost right away in ministry to have an opportunity to do that on a stage on Sunday to the church. So that was easy, right? That was, that was clear. That's the obvious place that you would do that. When we think about teaching in the church, it's the first thing we think of. And so for years, I had that opportunity. And so I didn't have to wrestle with this idea of what does teaching look like outside of that? And then I, we ended up at um, serving at the Cove Church in Mooresville for two years, which was great, and we needed it, and it was, it was a fantastic time for us. But in that environment, I walked into a, to a church where I wasn't the lead pastor. I wasn't the, the, the one who was on stage preaching on Sunday. And I struggled. I didn't know how to transition to that because that's what I was accustomed to. And I was frustrated. I got frustrated a little bit with God. Like, God, you wanted me to teach, and that's not happening here. What's going on? You know, like that opportunity wasn't there. And I felt like God really challenged me in it to say, yes, I have called you to teach. Now, how are you going to do that when you don't have a stage on Sunday? And so I had to find other ways to do it. Ways that were outside of the organization of that church. Ways that I could influence and teach and, 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 and work through it. And God showed me such a broader understanding of my ministry and gifts in that time. And so I'm thankful for that restriction for that period of time. And then we started this church and, then, and well, here we are. But the ministry that God has for you, whatever it is, it may be in your family it may be in a church environment. It may be somewhere in the community. It could be a lot of different things. But my challenge to you, in light of the gospel and what God has done for you, and the transformation that you are giving yourself over to in your life, to seek it out, to not go through your entire life and miss this, to miss the joy and the fulfillment and the peace and the confidence of knowing you are walking in what God wants you to walk in. And as you walk in your ministry, you're going to see things happen in your life that you can't possibly understand, that you can't believe, that you got to be a part of that. Because it's something that's not natural. It's something that's supernatural. And we all get the opportunity to participate. This is something big big that God wants to do with you. He is so good and he is so loving and he wants you to experience that and walk in that. So give yourself as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to him, being transformed by the renewing of your mind, 
and walking confidently in the gifts that he's given to you to serve each other and to serve him. Like I said, we need to focus on him. We need to ask him for these things. So let's go to him now in his love and ask him to lead us each in this. Father, we love you so much. You are so good, so good and so kind that you would graciously send your son here, Jesus, that you would graciously give your life. That despite all the effort that we put in to try and be good and try to please you or earn our way to you like a hamster in a wheel, you look at that and you say, no, it's by faith in Jesus and that's it. You put your faith in him. You trust in him for salvation. You trust, that you trust in his death. You trust in his resurrection. And I will save you. God, I pray someone would receive that today and put their faith in you today. And then as we learn to walk in light of that, in light of the goodness that you've shown to us, the faithfulness that we've seen, We offer ourselves to you as a living sacrifice. We offer our entire lives to you. Everything we have and everything that we are, we place in your hands. And we ask you, God, to show us where we've been conformed to the world, where we've been conformed to attitudes, values, ideas, passions, dreams that align with the world instead of your plans for us. And as you show us those things, we ask that you transform us as, as you were transforming us into the glory of Jesus, the image of Jesus. that you'd help us to look more and more and more like him. And as we do that, as we show our faith and we see what you're doing, what you're doing in our life, what you're doing around us in other people's lives, that we would see that it's good, that it's perfect. And that as our faith and trust continues to rise and grow, that you would open our eyes. I pray, God, you open the eyes of everyone in this room to your ministry for them. Your plan for them, how you want them to serve. To serve in their families, to serve in their church, to serve in their community, to serve in the world. How do you want them to impact and how are you gifting them for that? As their faith rises, how you're giving them a measure and trusting them with it. Show us, God. Show us what you're doing, what you want to do with us and through us. And as we step into that, we understand that it is completely by grace. It is 100% from you, not from ourselves. And so you receive and you deserve all of the glory for it. All of the honor, all of the praise. Let us think clearly and soberly about ourselves to know that we are your child and that you are transforming us and that you have a ministry for us. But every good and 
perfect thing is from you. And everything that you allow us to do is to you and for you and through you. And so, God, we are asking you to lead us. And we want you to know how thankful we are for your love. How thankful we are that you didn't cast us aside, but that you love us and you walk with us. It is a tremendous honor and joy. We love you with our whole heart. Amen.